1: We can't just return everything back. I'm not, not saying that either. But we need to look at our urban planning and put our drainage and our storm protection and the, and, and the biodiversity values in there back, to, back together to enable people to live, enable people to get benefits and not have some of these problems because we've taken the wetlands out.
0: How much of our flood zones are flood zones because there were supposed to be wetlands where that flooding of fresh water actually was necessary to support the biodiversity of life there? Why are the preservation and restoration of our wetlands key to stabilizing our planetary health and climate? that's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today green dreamer is a listener supported show and i need your help to be able to continue doing this work if it's become a regular part of your routine or if it's inspired you in any way and you're able to support green Dreamer, starting at just one dollar per month you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information and thank you so much if you're already a patron it helps a ton and i do really really appreciate it For now, to our conversation with Max Finlayson, the president of the Society of Wetland Scientists and a wetland ecologist with expertise in the areas of water pollution, agricultural impacts, invasive species, climate change, and human well-being and wetlands. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: Well, my path into looking at not just wetlands, but nature and wild areas, etc., was actually in my childhood, growing up, in a small town, in a farming area in Australia. And we didn't have many facilities in terms of playgrounds or all these things, you know, shopping malls or whatever we now have. And we just used well, I used to just disappear into the countryside. Some of it was cleared, some was farmland, some was more wild. And it was safe to do so, And to be honest about it. And we just, I wanted to find out what was there. And then the, the swamps, the ponds, etc., the lakes all had magnificent birds, had different trees, and I didn't know anything about it. And I wanted to find out. And we had seemed to have time to do that. And uh, I just kept doing it. And then I discovered when I went to university that you could actually study such things mm-hmm. and, and eventually have a job in such things. So I ended up working in the tropical part of Australia, which has magnificent floodplain wetlands, and these areas that flood annually, large floods, and then the birds appear, the fish are there, the plants are flowering, the bats are in the trees, the flying foxes as we call them, and I just thought, this is actually not what I ever thought I'd do in my life, and if I had thought of what I'd do in my life, this must be it, because it was magnificent, mm-hmm. it was life.
0: There's a common saying, drain the swamp, which commonly refers to (laughs) getting rid of a bad thing. And this then also implies that swamps are viewed as being bad, you know, something we need to get rid of. And I believe this saying at first was about draining swamps to get rid of mosquito populations to fight malaria, but I guess this negative connotation never really went away. So I'd love for us to get a fresh start to this. Can you give us a background of our wetlands, what exactly they are and their role within our planetary ecosystem?
1: Let me just start on that with referring to the issue about draining the swamps or get rid of the swamps. It was actually true. There are insects, and mosquitoes, etc., in the swamps which are dangerous to people. But a lot of it is not that these problems occur. It's how we manage swamps, wetlands of any sort, and how we live and use the uh, live in and actually use them. So, but there are issues we have to contend and there. You know, it's not all positive. We've got to be. I'm going to be honest about that. Wetlands as we now call, and the word's only 30 or 40 years old in a real sense, covers a whole series of aquatic ecosystems, you know, marshes, swamps, lakes, estuaries, coastal areas which are wet, and they can, have, they can have trees, they can have shrubs, they can have grasses. So They're very um, diverse ecosystems, and they support a huge amount of our global bi- biodiversity, the species that make up the biodiversity of the world. And to me, that's important, that ethical aspect of these animals and plants there. And we should give room on our planet to other organisms. I I really um, felt that from a a young age, as I mentioned before. But we live on the planet. We use various resources. We harvest various uh, resources. But we should share the planet as well. The other side of that is these ecosystems, the wetlands, the marshes, the swamps, the lakes, actually bring many benefits to us including the water supply, the fish that are in there, the actual food, the uh, protection from storms, and climate regulation, which is becoming more important, obviously. So There's all these multiple uses of these different um, ecosystems, which, characteristically, they have water. I think that's probably the simplest way of saying it. But, and this is a very important aspect of it, they do not necessarily have water all the time. They can be dry, mm. but as soon as they flood, or the rains, the floods come, where the, where the, the water comes directly from rainfall or from streams um, flowing through, the fish, the frogs, the plants all appear, and actually, and the, the birds appear. They come to life again. They're very um, diverse and full of life, and they have benefits to people. Mm. To me, that's what our you know, being part of this planet actually is.
0: So basically, wetlands can be dry at times throughout the year, but what ties them together is that when the rain falls, they're, they're able to hold on to that water and support the biodiversity of life there?
1: Yes, yes. And those, the time periods of when it rains or how long the water stays there varies, varies a lot, but they still have those basic type of organisms, basic functions, all around having water.
0: Globally speaking, how much of our wetlands have we drained and converted? For what reason, mostly, and how much of them are left today?
1: That's a very interesting question, because I'll give you some information, but we actually don't know, mm. because in many cases, we don't have the records going back into history. All the records are vague or not very clear. But if we look at the current data, and this only applies to the data we have, and therefore it's difficult to extrapolate this to a global pattern in time in particular, but since 1970, where we have information, it looks as though about a third of the world's wetlands have been destroyed, totally lost. And the reasons for that, we, we, can, always argue, sorry, we can always argue about the data, I mean, I want to, but that's a very bad figure. It's, you know, it's just far too high. But we look at the reasons, and I actually put this one way, is that we often, we want the water... And we want it elsewhere. We want to take it elsewhere for other uses, for irrigation, for example. Or we don't want the water and we want the hole. And therefore, and we want to fill in the hole and we put rubbish in it, we put all sorts of rubble and other other materials to build buildings or to build parking places as well, just to put our cars on, for goodness sake. Mm. So we've got this multiple reasons. It's been occurring since industrialization in particular, it was also occurring before, but we just got better at taking land and using it without considering the biodiversity itself, the actual losses that we're incurring. But we're also about, about considering the multiple benefits that these areas bring to people just by having the water and the biodiversity there. Become very industrial thinking. We have um, marvelous technology, but we've gone too far through using the technology and not recognizing the value of the biodiversity and the benefits that brings to people.
0: So judging by the technology needed to drain our swamps and convert the lands, do we have an estimation of how far back this could have gone? Like when did humans start to actually change these ecosystems?
1: Uh, we have data going back to um, the 16th, 17th century, uh, but but it's not global data, we have data from certain regions, in certain parts of Europe or certain parts of Asia, for example, Mm. where there's been documented that wetlands have been drained to enable people to actually live, to build their cities. We have have to remember, a lot of the world's cities, early cities in particular, were built on rivers or on the coast, and the wetlands are in those same areas. So if people wanted to live there and populations grew, people built these areas, and you know, initially it was small, but now half the world's population lives in cities. And a lot of those cities are built on former wetlands and they will not be put back. Yeah. So we really have a question for ourselves do we want them back? How do we put them back? We can actually put them back, but at great expense and time.
0: That was going to actually be my follow-up question is um, there are various (laughs) places around the world that are really prone to flooding. So like how much of this is just because these cities have been developed in places that are supposed to be wetlands where flooding may have been a good thing for that ecosystem? So it sounds like a lot of this could have been from that.
1: Yeah, I I I can't give an absolute figure and say this number or this area has been. We know in many parts of the world that we've built cities in areas that are prone to flooding. And, and when we take away the holes in the landscape, which is where the water used to go, the water has to go somewhere. So we've just changed the whole drainage pattern of many areas, and eventually it catches up with us. Mm. But also, the other one, which is perhaps a little bit more difficult to understand, or people didn't see it, was the coastal uh, systems you get tidal surge and storm surges coming from the sea or the ocean onto the land. When you get big storms, the tides, the water comes inland. We have to have the drainage systems to absorb the actual flooding from the ocean and to allow it to run back. And if we've blocked all those systems we've filled in the holes, we've taken away the trees which were the buffered it to some extent. Not not fully. No, totally. We always have floods. We're going to have to, have to accept that as well. So we just alter the landscape to make the flooding worse. And in some places of the world, we've built so many dams along the rivers that the sediment that used to get to the coast to build up the coast, to build up the deltas, no longer gets there. So the deltas aren't being um, replenished. They're not being built. Mm-hmm. So the ground level is actually going down, to, to be very simple about it, and therefore the water is going to come in further.
0: So human activity, it sounds like, has really changed our water cycle and the way that you know the story of water, where water is supposed to go.
1: Where water is supposed to go is a big issue in it, yes. But water water also carries the sediment, which helps build the coastlines, etc. And if we take away the flow of the rivers, we take away the sediment supply. The Mississippi in the in the in the US is probably a very good example of that.
0: So going forward, is it just especially not a good idea to convert and develop bioregions regions are, that are supposed to be wetlands, because then natural events like flooding would then become natural disasters.
1: Yes, to be very straightforward about it, I'd say yes. And we we, we can't manage all floods. You know, some floods, some storms are just too big. But for the smaller ones, for the you know the more average ones, if you want to put it that way, wetlands were able to accommodate some of the impact. I'm not saying it's absolute. It would be silly to argue it's it's an absolute uh, protection, but it was part of the protection system. And then we built our cities and our housing in the wrong places, on the floodplains, for example. Floodplains mean one thing. It means they get water from the river. And we build our houses our cities there. We're asking for trouble.
0: So when we cover our urban landscapes with just concrete, where water can just run off right away without... Because when it used to be land and, you know, the earth, water would kind of filter through the layers of filter, yes. sediments and almost get purified as well through that process. But right now, our dirty water from the urban spaces are just running off and going right into our waterways and oceans. What is the impact of that?
1: The water comes off faster. If you put hard hard surfaces in, you know, through building cities largely, then it's, it's still going to rain. We still get big storms under, under climate change. I think we are in the world. Some of those storms are going to be bigger in the future, as far as we know. So the water is going to come off faster. At the same time, if we filled in all the holes or block the channels where the water used to flow or be stored, it has to go somewhere. And water has a lot of force, as we know. Mm. So we get, we need to – know. When we we can't just return everything back. I'm not, not saying that either. But we need to look at our urban planning and put our drainage and our storm protection and the and and the biodiversity values in there back to, back together to enable people to live, enable people to get benefits, and not have some of these problems because we've taken the wetlands out.
0: You studied extensively the relationship between climate change and our wetlands, and recently co-authored an article titled. What our world needs to fight climate change more swamps. So how do our wetlands fit into this picture of our climate crisis and perhaps also on the flip side how does climate change impact our remaining wetlands?
1: True. wetlands are actually part of the solution to climate change because under certain conditions they store carbon. And to try and address climate change we want to store carbon. Carbon that is in the in the in the atmosphere. We want to store it and keep it away so it doesn't keep causing the problems with the warming aspect in the atmosphere. So, we've taken the wetlands away, we lose that carbon store. But worse, when we take the wetlands away, we often get a pulse, a large outlet of methane. And methane is worse than carbon dioxide in the climate change arguments. Now, but if we don't manage the freshwater wetlands in particular properly, We can also increase the carbon dioxide output from those systems. We have to to remember, carbon dioxide and methane emissions to the atmosphere are natural from wetlands and other ecosystems. It's how how we've upset the balance there to lose more of these areas, to lose the carbon store, storage facility, but also to increase the emissions. And we've been doing that for centuries. And in the last couple of centuries, obviously making the biggest uh, impact. So, But the impact, the, the other side, we turn it around, the impact on wetlands, we need water, we need rainfall patterns that um, sustain particular biodiversity types for different areas. This is where some areas are wet, some are dry, and et cetera. Some have very strong seasonal patterns. Some don't have strong seasonal patterns. We're changing the climate. And therefore, we're changing the actual cycle, the breeding and feeding cycles of many organisms, in, including some of those which migrate from the north to the south of the, of the, of the world and go back again. So you know, some of these long-term migrants, they stop looking for their fuel, their food, and there's no habitat, there's actually no shop to supply the food, if you want to, if you want to put it that way, because we've taken it away. So we're affecting organisms, different species, at local levels, but also globally, because a lot of these organisms move over long distances, and they they need the habitats along the entire path that they migrate on.
0: Mm.
1: And some some of the birds go twelve thousand kilometres or more. That's huge, and we're we're taking away the the fuel stations from them for very very narrow local purposes.
0: I feel like oftentimes people who live in maybe urban spaces far away from our wetlands may not understand or be able to feel the impact that they have. So aside from their role in mitigating climate change and supporting, of course, its own biodiversity of life, how do the presence and health of our wetlands influence our public health for people?
1: One of the biggest ones, which I think we're starting to realize with the urbanization of our, of our um, global societies, is that green spaces water in the environment actually is a strong psychological benefit to people rather than just concrete jungles when I mean, people benefit from having green space and water in the environment so that, that psychological benefit people are actually realizing that and and there's quite good evidence in some in some areas of the benefits that people get but I don't think everyone realizes it I don't think all our, our medical people realize it as well so we've got that—that's a general well-being or feeling, which I think is important. But also, if you go to various societies, uh, a lot of people still get their direct food from wetlands. Fish is one of the main ones, and you know, someone's get, fish has got to come from somewhere. We need the breeding places. And some people, I mean, many people go to the markets and buy them now. Other people have to go and actually catch fish or hunt for themselves, etc. So there's, there's that direct benefit, food and poverty and disease, etc., and health all actually roll together from a psychological point of view to actually what we put in our stomachs, what we have to eat, and having access to fresh water. Wetlands contain the water. So why do we drain wetlands? We're actually short of water in many parts of the world.
0: Mm.
1: With urban, urban expansion, industrialization on the coastal system, we drain the wetlands, and therefore we lose the water.
0: So on the one hand we're draining our wetlands and on the other we're building dams which is not allowing our sediments yes. to flow in the right places.
1: <laughs> yes. You got that perfectly. So and but see, one of the, in, our, in our economic model different people get benefits from that and different people pay the cost. So yeah, uh, we don't actually the representatives of those the, with the winners and losers in these decisions is very unequal and as you, in more societies and across our, across time the poorer or vulnerable people tend to suffer because mm. they don't have a say in, in the in the um, decisions and they, they suffer more because they haven't got the financial resources to try and recover in some other way.
0: Do you feel like that's one of our greatest challenges to being able to conserve our wetlands or what are our biggest roadblocks right now to protecting our remaining wetlands and restoring damaged ones if that's possible?
1: We have We have to recognise the values and we have to recognise that we've lost a lot of value and we've got to get that into policy, and that policy has got to be put there alongside urban development or industrial development policies. Which We couldn't just treat it as one or the other, but we've got to get the natural, and not just wetlands, but the natural ecosystems back into the equation, and we still see them not being considered because look at a lot of our cities, they want to build a, a, a new road, a large road, a six or 10 lane highway because there's too much traffic elsewhere. Ah, oh, there's some wetlands there. If we steal the wetland in, we have a cheap road, which is true. And a lot of people get benefit from that, to be honest. But we'd lose the wetland, we lose all the other benefits. And it's not a straight economic argument. It's not there's dollars for this and dollars for that. It's going to be more than economics. Economics is part of it, obviously, but there's other values. So there's human value of our ecosystems needs to be appreciated. The ethical value, I think, needs to be there. I mean, I'm really quite strong on this. We shouldn't be destroying every other species on the planet, partly because if we have them, they actually help us. It's the combination, not just the individual parts. And you you asked something else there about uh, restoring wetlands. We can restore wetlands. And the US, I would say, in my opinion, is um, probably the leader globally in wetland restoration. But it costs a lot of money to put the ecosystems back, and it takes a long time to re-establish the actual functions and values. You can, you can, you can build a pond. Or you can build a large pond or you know something else, but it takes a long time to get it functioning, to get the biodiversity, to get the chemical processes, etc., operating to give us all the benefits. Mm. So there's a time issue and a money issue. But we, we, we can do it. But to me, that's not an excuse because we've lost, I don't know, 30-odd percent. That, that, that we know about, we don't know about everything, and we know it's um, detrimental to us in modern societies as we live. We need these ecosystems to help us survive. And our, politician, I think our politicians, our decision makers and our industrial people, the money, the finances, I really don't think they see anything but money or jobs, which gets them re-elected if you're a politician, etc. Human society is better than that, and we need to show we're better than that, and we can but not some of our leaders. i will come out with that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so because all of these decision makers seem to make their decisions based on monetary value, do you think part of the solution is that we have to be able to translate, we have to be able to translate the value of our ecosystems in monetary terms because that's the language that they speak?
1: Yes, look, we're actually talking about the today at a meeting was that. Whenever we do these valuations on an economic basis, Wetlands and some other ecosystems come out as far more valuable than almost anything else we do. The problem is there's no trade in those values. It's a straight economic valuation, but there's no market, so things aren't traded. Therefore, people aren't making money. People are not creating new jobs because they're not creating new industry, etc. Or new, you know, buildings or new schools, etc. Which we, which we want, but we're we not. We're undervaluing the benefits, and it's but it's not. The economic valuation is one thing, and if we looked at those arguments, we actually stop what we're doing, but it's not carrying the weight because there's no market, and therefore people are not making a lot of profit. Mm. But but the the uh, replacement cost of that, if we want, if we want um, storm protection, it's a huge cost to go and build walls or seawalls or levees or something around our cities or anything, not just around our cities. But... <laughs> Individuals don't often pay for that. Society, through our taxes pay for that. So the money gets dispersed. So this, this whole economic model, I think it's just got out of kilter. <laughs> it's, it's imbalanced. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an economist at all. But, you know, when things are lost.
0: It's definitely not placing the proper values, especially on nature. Because, like you said, no one profits from keeping an ecosystem intact and untouched no one profits directly from it.
1: Yeah, but then everyone benefits, indirectly at least.
0: Well, what have you been working on that you feel like has been really effective in driving change for conservation? And what do you think we need most at a societal level to be able to really protect our wetlands and also prove the value that they have for public health, planetary health, and for our climate crisis?
1: One we've been working on trying to show the values of these ecosystems to, to people to actually improve people's knowledge. So we, you know, scientists get the knowledge, it doesn't necessarily reach other people. So we've got to have that mechanism of getting better knowledge, getting more knowledge, but at the same time, sharing that knowledge or putting it into forms where other people understand it and can actually use it. But that's one aspect of that, of how we get knowledge, how we share it. The other one is to try and point out, what we lose if we don't. So we, you know, this is the negative side of it. This is doomsday almost approach, which only works with a certain number of people. So there's actually multiple ways of doing it. So that what we're doing at the moment as well is how do we work with local communities to get local communities on side to understand the value of having these ecosystems. So the actual pressure on the local politicians through the system, through the through economic models, comes from the people who have most to lose once they understand. Mm. And many of them have some idea. I mean, people aren't totally stupid. I'm not trying to say that at all. But they don't understand necessarily the full links or the actual extent of the change and, therefore, the extent of what they're losing until it's too late. So getting better knowledge, but as part of that getting better knowledge, it's not just scientists or researchers going out and doing this for everyone else. A lot of local communities have a lot of knowledge about their ecosystems, about their land, about their water. and They actually know what works and what doesn't and what's been changing. We have to make better use of that information with them, not just for them. It's got to be with people. Mm. So the whole top-down approach of universities, government agencies, research institutes, going out and saying, we want to research this on your land, is next to useless. We need to be going in this, talking to people. and We've got to find the right mechanisms, the right training, because not everyone can do this well, of going to the communities and say, not, not that you have a problem, asking them what problems do they think they have or do they see themselves having and what, what is urgent to them. And then we're talking with them to share our values and share our knowledge and come up with the best solutions. But that takes time. It doesn't allow for big egos because people have got to be equal and on the ground. But I actually don't see we can change anything else. And then you ask, how do we, and you could ask, how do we then get change even if we have that knowledge and that shared knowledge? I think we need to take more action and the climate change. Issue at the moment, I think, shows this where school children in various countries in the world are going on strike. They're walking out of schools and saying, You people aren't looking out for our future. We're not going to budge. We're going to tell you you're not looking out for our future. That I think has had actually a huge impact. Some of our politicians don't like it. You know, and you hear all these total comments, they will be better back at school if they were, you know, being learning rather than out there shouting in the streets. <laughs> I think they're better. We need more people shouting in the streets about these things. And we need to understand what we're shouting about, which is that knowledge understanding issue which I mentioned earlier. And I think the scientists and the educators need, 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 need to be with them, not just waiting for them to do it. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily suit everyone. I accept that fully. We're not all you know, activists shouting in the street type people. But we can, we can help support the arguments that those people are putting forward. By representing those facts through our, our news media or our links to politicians, etc.
0: To close, what are some things you think that we can do as individuals that can be really impactful in safeguarding and restoring our wetlands?
1: Go back to almost following the same theme I've been putting forward. It's locals finding out what is valuable in their area, what they've lost, and where they can influence the decisions to. Either uh, retain certain aspects of the wetlands that are left, or influence poli- local politicians. I mean, now and local council level politicians influence them to make the decisions which suit us on the ground, and sharing that knowledge and bringing bringing their neighbours along and talking about it. So I think uh, I'm really strong in terms of local activism is one side, but local knowledge I think is more important, mm. and then. When you have these um, volunteer programs, being part of it or encouraging other people to be part of it, you can't actually do it yourself. But then the, the other side of that is how we actually live, how we um, recycle goods on our own, own property, how much how much we use ourselves. One thing that I'm doing is, and I've done this a little bit over my life, I'm doing it more now, I'm trying to grow all vegetables that I need in a year. And that, that, that's ones I can grow locally, not ones I can import from outside because we actually survive in many places on what we grow locally. You just have to be able to do it and know what to do. So I mean, in my case, I've actually got to build the soil on my a little bit of land because the soil is so bad. But when I build the soil, a lot of my waste goes back into the soil. So I'm recycling a lot more. And, and a lot of these, these little things are important. One of the, I think one of the best examples nowadays, it's not about wetlands, it's about energy, is where local people have invested in uh, renewable energy and gotten off the big power grids, the state-owned or the private big corporation-owned coal-fired power stations, for example. Where well, they get there and they have some solar or wind or whatever other sources and battery storage for their local communities. And there are you know, enough examples to show under different economic models around the world, we can actually do that now. It takes planning, it takes effort. So it's just that you have to do it yourself in the end with your neighbors. At the same time, I have to go back to my roots. We actually need more scientific information as well, but not forget that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we don't need more scientific information to manage better now. We need more scientific manager- information to manage better into the future.
0: Hey, just wanted to take a moment to let you know that I've been sharing some key talking points and suggested action steps to use from each episode on Patreon. So if you're able to support the show starting at just $1 per month, you'll get access to all the extended content there. Green Dreamer is an independent new media platform, so every bit of your support really helps me to keep putting these episodes out as free educational resources. To become a patron and maybe join our Green Dreamer network as well, just head to greendreamer.com support for more information. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow?
1: I read the Guardian newspaper, the international version of the Guardian weekly newspaper. It's a newspaper from the UK.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: What do I tell myself? I actually am an an optimist that people are good and there are people trying so I can work with them.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: I'm actually making sure I walk 8,000 steps a day Mm. because I wasn't when I was stuck in the office too much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably?
1: Uh, No, it's my personal attitudes about, as I said earlier, about gardening and recycling material from my house.
0: What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment?
1: Local action and... The example of the the um, school children going on strike about climate change.
0: Where can we go to continue learning from you and following and supporting your work online? I mean, I, I write and publish a lot in a
1: scientific medium, which doesn't necessarily get, to, and most people don't want to read it. Sometimes it's pretty boring and hard reading. To be honest, <laughs> I think people like myself need to join blogs and put our scientific information. Into more popular language, and it's not quite answering your question, but it's it's partly there. So I need I actually need to do something more so people know what I'm talking about.
0: Well, I'll say like a simple Google search of your name alone can take us to um, a lot of your past work, so that's definitely a start. <laughs>
1: A Google can, but there's a lot of stuff there that people don't want to read. Come on. I know that.
0: <laughs> it's okay. I'm super nerdy, so I actually enjoy reading that. But um, hopefully we'll see you elsewhere soon as well. But for now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: I think there is hope. And that hope comes from people being knowledgeable, aware, and working together. And I'm, I'm an optimist. I think we can do it. Humans are not totally stupid. We actually are, sm- are a smart species.
0: Green Dreamer, thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. You can now subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube by going to greendreamer.com YouTube. And again, to access my weekly takeaways and suggested action steps to do from each episode, you can join me on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. Thank you so much for your continued support. Just knowing you're here keeps me going and I wanted to extend my sincere gratitude to you for your huge heart, passion, and dedication to continuing this ever-learning journey with me. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.